Okay, I got a couple of jokes. Are you ready? I worked on them all afternoon. Didn't eat or didn't touch food, you know. An elf who sings is what? A rapper. Hey, an anonymous church member sent, really, a church member sent that to me this afternoon and did not identify themselves because they were a coward thinking it might flop. I like it, though. If you cross a snowman and a vampire, what do you get? Vampires are very popular today. You know, they kind of came back in culture. Frostbite. Amen. <laughs> the kids at First Baptist are, were really... Really smart. What is the parents' favorite Christmas carol this time of year? Silent, silent, holy, holy night, right? (laughs) Okay, Christmas. We've been talking about Christmas. This is our fifth sermon in this series about what is Christmas about. And we know that Christmas is ultimately about Jesus' birth, but Jesus' birth, it wasn't just when, when Jesus got born, I mean, a thousand things come from that. And we've talked about it being giving, we've talked about it getting guidance. We've talked about knowing our life purposes and being able to see God. This evening, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, the beautiful story you just heard read. And, and I want to tell you this. I want you to listen to me because so you won't think I'm, I'm being crazy, but Christmas is about you. You ever thought about that? Now, I understand that it could be easy when you hear When you hear me say Christmas is about you, you think, well, preacher, you're getting secular. And I'm not talking about gifts or I'm not talking about you being the focus of Christmas. I'm talking about you being the focus of why Jesus Christ came to this earth, creating Christmas and the cross. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. A little background here. This is Caesar Augustus. Some said he was the greatest emperor that Rome ever had. And they had these every 14 years. They had these registrations where people would have to go back to their their own town. Their hometown, we'll see in a moment. Ancestral town. And then the reason they did this, they didn't have computers they didn't have a, a place that you would go and be tortured, you know, to get a new driver's license or whatever. They had to go to these towns to register for taxes and military purposes. And they were going to their hometown. Look in verse 14, and, uh, excuse me, verse 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. Now, it says betrothed there. You catch that just subtly in there. They weren't married yet. Betrothed was a one-year period when the couple was, right before they got married, they didn't have sex, they didn't live together, but she's pregnant. We know it's supernatural. But that's where they are in this state. Now, there's a subtle little thing. It says they went up from Nazareth to Jerusalem. I want you to see a map of the Holy Lands. This is Nazareth, obviously, where it says Nazareth. Does that make sense? That is Jerusalem and Bethlehem. You do not have to be a a mapologist to know that is north and that is south. Is the Bible incorrect here when it says they went up to Jerusalem? Some people might say, well, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. The Bible does know what it's talking about. Jerusalem is 1,400 feet higher above sea level than Nazareth. So when you left Nazareth to go to Jerusalem, you were on a steady hike upward. That's why they went up to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is five or six miles 
from Jerusalem. So that's where they're going. They're going there because David's bloodline is traced back to King David. It's super important. Joseph's bloodline is traced back to King David. It's super important because the Messiah is going to come through the lineage of David. By the way, Mary's bloodline, it traces back to David too. So they're going back to Bethlehem, this little village of their ancestral origin. In verse 6 and 7, while they are there, they make this, you know, probably the route they would have taken, it's about a 90-mile trip with a very pregnant woman on a donkey walking. Wouldn't that have been fun, men? And you think your wife was tough during her pregnancy. Verse 6 and 7 Verse 6 and 7, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Good timing. God's timing is perfect. It's not always comfortable for us. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. You know, they're starting to do babies like that again, wrap them up tight and close. Maybe that God knew what he was talking about there. They laid him in a beautiful, beautiful baby bed in the hospital there in Bethlehem and went back to the Holiday Inn Express for a good night's rest. No, it says they laid him in a manger. And that's how we know where Jesus was born. We have a picture of the traditional place where Jesus is born. Now, that doesn't look like a, a barn, does it? <laughs> that is in Bethlehem, and that is the area in a cave. And, and where was Jesus born? Well, we know he was not born in a home because it says they laid him in a manger. A manger is a animal trough. It's a cattle feeder is what it is. We don't sing away in a cattle trough because that doesn't sound good, does it? We sing away in a manger. But Jesus said that there was no room for them in the inn. Here's this very pregnant lady. They get there, and they had family, had to have family there. Nobody had a place for them. So here's Jesus Christ. He's born. Was it a barn like we think of a barn? Was it an open-air corral? It was probably a cave is what the closest tradition to that time tells us, that he was born in a cave. And then it says they laid him in a manger. They put him in a, a cattle trough. That was his bed. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty humbling, isn't it? All that took place, I'm here to submit to you this evening, for a lot of reasons, God making himself known to us, seeing what God's like, knowing why we're here on this earth, but also it's about you. You see, here's another big thought for you tonight. Jesus Christ is looking for you. That first Christmas evening, we would say, when the Son of God was born in a barn and laid in a cattle feeder, it says there were men out keeping watch at night. Look in verse 8 and 9. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. They were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. You really can't help this guy. Let me tell you a little background on shepherds. Shepherds were a, a low economic job. It was a lower economic job. It was a tough, blue-collar job. And in this area, and we don't have any reason to believe these weren't good guys, but shepherds as a whole were not considered good people. In fact, they were not a, a, a considered a reliable witness in court. You had to go to court. You didn't want to bring a shepherd with you because they had a reputation of being thieves. They walked through fields a lot, and when they did, they took your stuff and their stuff. Many of them were put under by the rabbis, the rabbinic ban, which basically mean that they were not allowed to go to the synagogue, which was the local church. Can you imagine that? Because they were considered unclean for their work out in the field and their inability to get to the temple and to fulfill a lot of the Jewish laws and rituals. And it's these men out doing their job at night. And look in verse 10, what happens? 
And the angel said to them, you fear not, guys. That's easy for an angel to say, isn't it? How many of you think if an angel showed up in your room tonight, you'd be spooked a little bit? Hopefully you're not drinking, right? You would be. You would be very spooked about that. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. I want you to think about this. Again, it's it's harder for us to get hold of because we're removed from the context. When Jesus Christ was born, when the Son of God was born, when God became flesh to live amongst us, He's born in a barn, and the first people that get the message aren't the preachers. It's not the church people. It's not the religious people. It's the religious and social outcasts that the message comes to. I think that's awesome. And it comes to them when they're going about their business, not even expecting God to speak to them. I want to tell you this evening, God is looking for you this evening. You may have come in here tonight not expecting to hear from God, wanting this to be over quickly, wanting to get out and eat, and I want to go eat too, but we won't rush it. We'll be out shortly. But I want to tell you this evening, God's looking for you. I told my staff this morning in our meeting, the night I became a Christian, or the the result of a service I went to when I became a Christian the next night, I went to that church. I wasn't looking to meet God at all, and God showed up in my life and met me. I want to tell you, God's looking for you this evening. Doesn't matter about your past. Doesn't matter about what church people think about you. By the way, you can come to this church. We're going to love you despite you because we're just like you. Amen? Doesn't matter about your present. You go, man, you don't know what my life is like today. Jesus is looking for you. I read this week there's a tribe. It's kind of an oxymoron. A northern tribe in South Africa. Doesn't that sound kind of funny? A northern tribe in South Africa, and their greeting in their native tongue, if you translate it to English, what they say is instead of hi or hello, they say, I see you. I, and don't you like that? Because we say hi and we don't see each other. <laughs> hey, what's up? And we, we don't even know who we've said hey, what's up to. Hi. They're saying, I see you. You know what? God tonight, God tonight sees you. God sees you. And I want to tell you one last big thought on this is that he sees you and he's looking for you because he wants to positively transform your life. You see, it's not always good news to know someone's looking for you. Amen? How many of you had parents looking for you and it wasn't good news? (laughs) You see, the popo in the blue lights, that's not always good news, is it? (laughs) That's not always good news. Hey, if Jesus is looking for you, it's not only good news... It's absolutely great news. Look in verse 10. This verse is so tremendous. And the angel said, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The, word, the phrase good news, when he says, I bring you good news, he goes, I've got an announcement to make that's unbelievable. It's almost like he's redundant here. I've got an unbelievable announcement of great news, a great news story. The word great means exceeding or large or mighty. I've got a, hey, I want to... I want to share something with you that's unbelievable, that, that is great and mighty, and that's going to bring great joy. The word joy means exuberance or rejoicing. I mean, these are emotional words that God's saying to those guys. Guys, I've got something for you that's fantastic. By the way, this is the same message he has for you and me this evening. I've got something that is tremendous, and he says it's for all the people, not for a few, not just for the Jewish people, not for the chosen frozen. 
not for my team, but not your team, but for all people. All includes who? It includes you. Jesus says, I've got great news, he told those shepherds, that's going to be for all people. 2,000 years ago, later, people sitting in First Baptist, I've got a great news for you, for all people. And then in, in verse 11, here's the news. For unto you this is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I want to look at Christ and Lord, and we'll go back to Savior in a minute. Christ is the Greek. New Testament was written in Greek. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, Messiah, the promised one of God, the anointed one of God. He said, hey, guys, I got great news. The anointed promised Messiah, the Jewish people have been looking for the Messiah for years. He has been born. He is Lord. Did you see that? He is Lord. It's easy for us to overlook that. Lord meant he's God. This is a little bit confusing. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. Jesus' day, they had translated to, to Greek. It was called the Septuagint. And the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, often when it talked about God the Father, it used a Greek word, kuros, which meant Lord. And here they're saying about Jesus, hey, the Messiah, God, has just been born. Is that not incredible? And he is the Savior. He is the Savior. Folks, the Roman people called their emperor their Lord. In fact, a lot of Christians died because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. The Roman people said our emperor is our Savior. And the Bible says here, your emperor might be a Savior in some ways, but here's come a Savior who can really save you. That biblical word Savior means a deliverer, a rescuer, someone who can preserve you, can make things right, can turn what's upside down and make it the way it should be. Jewish people were looking for a Savior. They thought the Savior was going to come and deliver them from Rome. Roman government was oppressive. It was a military state. Taxes were high. They were beaten down, and they thought, if we can just get the Savior elected, we'll be in good shape, or he'll come and rescue us. That wasn't why he came. In fact, in Jesus' day, the Roman world was under what was called the Pax Romana, which meant Roman peace. Twenty years earlier, the Caesar, the emperor, had said, we will not be at war at land or sea, there's going to be peace in our world, in the Roman world. And Epictetus, a philosopher of Jesus' day, said the emperor can demand peace at war and sea, but the emperor cannot give peace in our mind and heart. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to save us. It is not a stretch at all to say Christmas is about you. You remember John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The giving of Jesus didn't start at the cross. It started at the manger. It climaxed at the cross. Folks, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ was born looking for people. That word world means the sum total of individuals. And if you're not aware of this, you are one of the sum total of individuals in this world. I touched on it this morning, but I want to drive it home again to you this evening. Jesus came to save you. There's some of you here this evening. If you died tonight, you're not going to heaven. You can reverse that course before you leave here tonight. Jesus came to save you and give you a home in heaven forever. Is that not wonderful? But you Christians, again, don't blow that off. 
You need saving all the time, not eternally, but from your messes that we create. And our sin, see, Jesus just didn't come to save us, get us in heaven and let us go. He came to save us and to change us and transform us every day of our life. He came to save us from our sin. Some of you got marriages that aren't going to be together this time next year if Jesus doesn't jump in and save it. He came to do that. You're overburdened with the sin and the junk in your life, and Jesus came to save you and to rescue from the, you from that. I quoted John 10, 10 this morning. Jesus said, I've come to give you life, but not just life. I've come to give you abundant life. In Luke 2, 14, down a few verses, Jesus said, For those who follow me, I'm going to give you peace. Peace on earth to people who please me and who are right with me. Isn't it exciting to know that when Jesus was born, he came on purpose looking to you to save you, to rescue, and to give you the life that you truly want. That's what religion's all about, folks. And by the way, he's the only one who can do that. Do you know that? Cindy and I lived in Cisco, Texas, which is, if you get on I-20 and go six hours, you run right into it. That's where I pastored before I came here. Eastland, Texas is a little town, the county seat, 10 miles east of Cisco. On December the 15th, a terrible thing happened in Eastland. I read this in the newspaper. A house caught on fire, and a young father ran back in the house and saved his seven-year-old girl. He got her out. And he ran back in to try to find his four-year-old stepdaughter. And they both died. You know, when I read that story, man, it just did to me what it just did to you. is like, oh, how horrible. And they found the little girl hiding in the closet, which often happens. And her, him, both of them died of smoke inhalation as he tried to save her. And, you know, as I read that story, I, I don't know who that guy was, never met him, but you know, in my mind, he's a hero forever. He's a hero forever. I mean, he, you don't get any braver than that. But you know what else rang out to me? You and I can't always save everybody, can we? In fact, I might be able to pull you out of house once or twice, but I might die in the house with you the next time. Brandon might be able to help save your marriage This year, he might not in two years if you don't straighten things out. None of us are equipped to save you fully. But you know, we have a Savior, the Bible says, that is the anointed one of God, who is God in the flesh. We've got one that honestly and truly can save and deliver us, don't we? How many of you have ever gotten a gift card? Gotten some of this, Chris? I love gift cards. You send me gift cards, food gift cards. Send them to Chris Craig, not to Cindy Craig. <laughs> Did you know they estimate that the average American has $300 worth of gift cards sitting unused somewhere in their house? And over the last decade, the five year period, listen to this, this is phenomenal. The, the, the economists say that. Probably up to $41 billion, $41 billion of gift cards have been wasted. <laughs> we, have, we have this access to it, and a lot of times it's just carelessness, and we don't use it. You know, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, 
That's the ultimate gift. And I want to ask you this, this evening, will you slip out tonight and will you slip out into eternity someday? Leaving that gift card on the table of Jesus Christ. Won't you reach out and use it tonight? Let's pray. This evening, if you're a Christian, man, re-embrace Jesus. Re-embrace that He is your forgiver, your Savior, your Lord. Re-embrace Him tonight. He's your gift. Man, reach out and take Him and keep Him near your heart. You're not a Christian. You're unsure if you're a Christian, but you're ready to cross that line with Jesus tonight. Pray with me. Pray with me if you're sincere and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I want to turn from my sins. Jesus, I believe you're God's Son, that you died on that cross for me, and that you arose from the grave. I believe it, Jesus. Come into my heart. And Jesus, I surrender my life to you this evening.